We are in this series on uh, music in our worship and our gathering. <coughs> and uh, we've discussed it from various perspectives. It's been a little disjointed for me because we have services in between and then a week off and then back. And so it doesn't feel like a series. And I keep trying to make them fit together so that there will be some continuity. And yet, uh, if you come and you weren't here for part of the others, it makes some sense. Um, it seems to be making sense because I'm getting responses and um, uh, comments and questions that, that let me know that, that people are paying attention, so, um, so that's good. Uh, <clears throat> last week, we talked about how we ministered to one another through music, and of course we, had, we began to do that in our service, and, and I'm hoping that we will do that more, that during that praise and testimony time, that... Uh, you will begin to select hymns and songs. It's also appropriate to introduce a new song in that context, but obviously, if you're going to do that, the musicians need that song ahead of time, and we'll need to schedule that in. Um, but uh, that, that's an important part of that. Uh, I also, as I uh, told you, asked Stuart Dowerman to come one of these weeks and give us... Uh, uh, an explanation of, of Jewish liturgy and song in there. He's responsible for a great deal of messianic music and a uh, great musician. And uh, so I'm looking forward to when we can get him uh, to come and, and be with us in that context. Today I want to talk about musical style and what generally comes under the idea of traditional versus contemporary music. You, you may... Uh, uh, you're, you're probably certainly aware of uh, the fact that there are churches that say we have a contemporary worship and churches that say we have a traditional worship and churches that have both. Our contemporary worship is at this time. Our traditional worship is at this time. That's an that's a interesting uh, process. It's in part uh, because of the worldview shift that took place in the 1960s uh, between the, what we'd call the modern worldview and the postmodern worldview. Something happened that I think is, um, uh, set, has set a course that is really problematic, uh, both for our culture and for the church. Now, I don't care so much about the culture, but I do care about the church, and uh, I want to talk about that today in, in this context. There is a false dichotomy that developed in the 1960s. Uh, and this was the result of the youth movement uh, in America and the emergence of a music style called rock and roll within popular music. And there became a split between the younger and older generations, both in the culture and in the church. And it resulted in this, what I'm going to call a fictitious battle over traditional contemporary music. I believe that this is a taste great, less filling kind of argument. There was a commercial years ago where people were arguing whether something tasted great or was less filling. And it's, it's a stupid argument. We're good at stupid arguments in America. Where uh, people are arguing whether it tastes great or it's less filling. And it could be either, it could be both, and it could be neither. And those kinds of arguments... Um, show up in a lot of marriages, and those arguments show up in a lot of sibling fights, and those arguments show up on talk radio constantly, uh, and, uh, and, 
and on what we used to call news that now isn't news uh, on the TV. This false dichotomy took place uh, in a battle over traditional versus contemporary music or what was called hymns or choruses. And it became quite a fight. I was, I was in that fight, uh, fought one side, then fought the other side, and realized that this was a civil war where everybody who, who uh, lost uh, uh, was what was going to happen. We weren't going to really fix this battle because it was a false battle. Now, I want to give some background to it. Uh, this is related to what we talked about with uh, worldview, um, and I will try to stay with my notes, though, uh, because I lived through much of this, uh, there's a tendency for me to want to go on and explain ad nauseum some things that, that some of you will know, and it'll be nostalgic, and some of you will go, is this necessary? Are you going to give us a test? Right? So... World War II caused a generation to grow up very fast and very seriously. What we call the greatest generation, as they later came to be called, uh, uh, those people had become adults during a very difficult time. Now, you, un- you need to understand what adult meant. This, this World War II generation were going to become adults in their teen years anyway. Because that's the way the culture was. You became an adult somewhere between 14 and 18. uh, Usually closer. And uh, this generation, all of a sudden, because of Pearl Harbor, uh, was thrown into the war. And at 16, 17, 18, and 19, they were operating the highest technology this world had ever seen, winning a war and functioning Uh, And so they were not only adults, but they were very serious in that context. Uh, They had grown up in the Depression and now came of age uh, during the war. And after the war, they got married, moved to the suburbs, and uh, tried to have a quiet, safe, and better life for their children. They were the first generation, however, to have a soundtrack for their lives. It was the big band sound. And it could be found on radio and 78 records, uh, which I used to collect with my dad when I was a young boy. And pop music at that time was adult music. The music of the 40s was not for kids, it was for adults. And pop music and adulthood were connected. And that big band sound in the 50s also had a surge of what was then called country and western music, that was also adult music. Now, my parents uh, had come from Kansas and Missouri, and they were into country music. When I was two years old, I was taken to an Eddie Arnold concert, and I, as soon as they announced him, I don't remember this, but I was told that I stood up on my seat and clapped because I was, uh, I was listening to this music constantly. Uh, uh, my parents would pack us up in a 1940s Ford on Sunday afternoon, follow my grandparents out to 
some place, I have no idea where it was, but it was a concert of country and western music all afternoon, every Sunday, sponsored by a guy named Cal Worthington, who later would have a dog spot that was anything but a dog. And they would sponsor this music. And then my grandparents and my parents would sing into a tape recorder all of the old songs that they had come to know, the songs from World War II and these country Western songs. And that was, if you will, the environment that that I grew up in. Um, But this was adult music. There was children's music. Wheels on the bus go round and round. Itsy bitsy spider. Twinkle, twinkle little star. There was kids music. And there was adult music. And that's all there was. The next generation, my generation, the baby boomers, born from the 19 mid-40s after the war to uh, 1960, uh, was a different uh, generation. We had a different childhood. We did not grow up in a depression. We grew up in a suburban life uh, that had plastic on the uh, couches and Tupperware, and TV dinners, and TV stands, because there was this newfangled thing called a TV. We heard about our parents growing up with their parents listening to the radio and the fireside chats of the president, but we could actually watch things on this black and white TV. And again, there were two types of shows. There were adult shows, and there were kids' shows. So many of us watched uh, Captain Kangaroo. Uh, In this area, we had Sheriff John. We had Engineer Bill, who would teach us to drink our milk. And so you got a glass of milk, and Engineer Bill would give you a green light, and you'd start drinking. Red light, and you stop, because no engineer would drink on a red light. And then there was some lady who, romper room was it? She looked at us through a, a glass and could call us by name. So there was children's stuff and there was adult stuff because that's the way the world was. But a new music began to emerge in the mid-1950s called rock and roll. Now why was it called rock and roll? Because a boat, sailboat, uh, Rocks and rolls. And rock and roll became that kind of music. It was different than the big band music. It grew out of jazz, pop, country, and the black church. Particularly that, that kind of driving beat which made our parents... Uh, concerned. Uh, And it began to catch a generation at the time when this culture was creating a new period of life called adolescence. Adolescence had not existed. The term adolescence was very recent 
and it was used to talk about that very brief period between childhood and adulthood when the transformation took place. And normally it took place right around puberty up until about 14 to 16, and that was it. Very brief time. And the idea was that uh, the uh, American Psychological Association noticed that there was a great number of people that age, in those very early teen years, who were uh, becoming religious. They were making professions of faith. And Eric Erickson, the psychologist, had suggested that this was a period of an identity crisis. The identity crisis that was going on was this struggle from going to childhood to adulthood uh, with a culture that didn't have a clear series of rites of passage and other things that were going on. And so what began to uh, be studied, as is always the case, grows and expands. And so adolescence began to uh, develop. So the idea of youth moved from youth, young adult, to not yet adult. And the youth movement in America was connected to a new technology. As I said, I collected uh, 78 records. I still have some of those old Sons of the Pioneer, Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, 78 records, and the old uh, uh, big band stuff. Uh, my dad was quite a big band buff. Um, but a new kind of record that came out called the 45. It was faster, and you could put it with certain adapters onto a record player and play a series of them, which was great for teenagers getting together. But there was other technology as well. The radios that used to be about the size of this prayer altar were now, after the war, transistorized. I spent a lot of time when our TV went out or our radio went out. I would pick up a piece of paper and on that piece of paper was little stickers. Two ones, two twos, two threes, two fours, two sixes. And you would go to the back of the TV and you would take a tube out and you would stick the number on that tube and then you'd stick the number where that tube went. And you'd carry a whole box of tubes down to the store and you'd stick them on a tester to see which one of those tubes wasn't working. And then you'd buy the tube that you needed, carry them all back, and you'd have to replace all of those tubes. Any of you do that? You had to have done that. Uh, and that was how it was. But with transistors, there were no tubes. And you could get a radio about the size of a pack of cigarettes and stick an earphone in it and listen to music and no one else could tell what you were listening to. And that technology changed a generation. Because all of a sudden, radio stations began to only play rock and roll and not the other pop music. So all of a sudden we had adult stations and we had teenager stations. 
and teenager stations got replaced with shows for teenagers on TV. In, in the Southern California area, there was a guy named Lloyd Thaxton. And Lloyd Thaxton would play the current rock and roll, and he would mimic it and pretend he was singing it, and there was a dance program that went with it, and we would rush home to watch that. American Bandstand went national. And all of a sudden, there was a music and a soundtrack for a generation uh, that were called youth, but were no longer adults. Now in the church, a similar process was happening. The church had just gone through, uh, in the turn of the centuries, a shift so that we got a split between liberal Christianity and conservative Christianity. Liberal Christianity said, we'll take all the science we can, we'll keep as much of the Bible as is possible. The conservatives said, we're going to keep all of the Bible and we'll take as much of science as we can. And so there was a clear difference in them. This more conservative group split one more time between evangelicals and fundamentalists. The fundamentalists this time were not fundamentalists with regard to doctrine, but fundamentalists with regard to social issues. Fundamentalists did not wear makeup. They did not drink alcohol. They did not go to movies. They did not allow women to wear pants, which was beginning to happen. And they saw that as part of the theological framework, and they were certainly not interested in this devil music called rock and roll. The denominations were at war, and they didn't trust each other. We have the correct doctrine, the other people aren't really Christians. We do Christianity right. If they do it that way, that's wrong. And our culture was becoming post-Christian. What do we do with that? Do we join the culture? Do we not join? All of those things the denominations were struggling with. But there was another group of religious people. And they were called the parachurch. They had begun in the 40s. Some of them earlier. But they were targeted groups. Youth for Christ. Campus Crusade. Teen Challenge. They were looking to reach young people or military people and they were trying to bring them into the churches so they saw themselves as the arms of the churches. But when those people who were already being separated from the general culture into a different generation, and it was not a generation gap, we've always had generation gaps, we were having a generation gulf. And in that process... What happened was, when the people who came into that parachurch world came into a church, they were in a foreign place. I made a profession of faith at the age of 12 in a Dutch Reformed church because a fireman talked about hell, lit a spray can and a match, and the fire went down by me, and then he said, who doesn't want to go to hell? And I raised my hand because I was living in a, in a pretty rough family. I didn't know anything about God, 
But I certainly, if this was life, I didn't want to go to hell. So they told me to say some words. Then they told me I was a Christian. And within a few weeks, I slept that off. So I got into this new music. And in junior high, I uh, sold uh, St. Christopher medals because that's what people gave girls when they were going steady. And then the girls would throw them away when they broke off so I could make pretty good money on the return of St. Christopher medals. I had every color and shape and size. I didn't know what they were, but they, it worked for me. And I bought my first guitar. And I watched the TV, and I learned to play the guitar by watching TV. And a guy named uh, Jimmy Rogers messed me up big time. Jimmy Rogers didn't know how to play a guitar, so they tuned his guitar to a major chord. And he'd just take his thumb on the fifth fret and the seventh fret and did that. So I started playing the A that way, and I, I, played, I, I just played the best I could. And then I picked up the bass, and then a group said, let's... Uh, start a band. So I started a band and that band became uh, pretty locally popular and uh, we did we did all right. Uh, there was a very well-to-do band at Santa Ana High School, uh, the Righteous Brothers, and we got connected to them because they were starting a recording studio here and we did some recording up at Capitol Records in there, did some children's programs, did some teen programs, and and I spent my high school years in rock and roll. So I was ex- I, I I had no real knowledge of the church. And then a friend of mine said, because folk music was popular, will you play the bass at a Youth for Christ rally at the Garden Grove Friends Church? And I said, no. And he said, there will be girls there. (laughs) And I said, what time is the rally? Now, subsequent to that, I would meet Linda in the men's restroom at that church. (laughs) Different story. (laughs) Because I became involved in Youth for Christ because I played the bass for that meeting. I sat down on the back row of the church waiting for this thing to be over. And at the end, they were doing this thing that I didn't know what it was, but it was called an invitation. And my friend got up and started walking down the aisle. And I thought, he's going to get the instruments. So I followed him into the counseling room. And when I got there, a huge football player guy started telling me about Jesus and about salvation. And I said, I already know this. And he said, well, did you make him Lord? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he talked about the difference between the idea of salvation, the idea of really following the Lord. And so I got involved in Youth for Christ and began to be discipled to some extent in that context. And when I would go into a church, it was a different world that I didn't understand. So I would only go to church when I was speaking, and the parachurch world and the church world by that time had separated. Now I had one foot in the world and one foot in the parachurch, both of them because of my music. The youth of America at that point began to rebel. We rebelled in clothing, we rebelled in language, we rebelled in religion. And in music, we didn't trust anybody over the age of 30. 
And the normal generation gap, as I said, moved to a gulf. We lived in our own world, with our own cars, with our own food, because their fast food restaurants kept, we didn't have to go home to eat. We could go to drive-in movies. We could listen to music. We could virtually stay away from our parents all the time. And that's what we did. As children, our parents were with us constantly. But as, a, as these adolescents, we were not in the adult world. We were not in our parents' world. We were in our own peer world. And that generation, with its separate existence... Uh, broke down family ties and friends mattered more than family and we now lived with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That couldn't last. And so what began to happen was the Jesus movement broke out in the 60s and that Jesus movement was basically this generation that didn't trust adults that was anti-establishment and therefore anti-church had now found Jesus and Jesus had long hair, and we had long hair, and Jesus had sandals, and we had sandals. And so we began to put our hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters, to coin the phrase. House churches, outdoor worship, outdoor baptisms allowed us to do this, and we had our own kind of Christianity, which was not religious. And our music was electrified. We had drums, bass, electric basses, electric guitars, and we had a different mindset of what music uh, was about. Now the churches had to do something because the parachurch world was not feeding the church. The churches were in trouble. And so the churches decided that they would cater to this, and they started two kinds of things. Children's programs that will make Jesus fun. And they'd gather up people on a bus, and they'd go around the neighborhood, and they'd give out candy and get the kids on the bus. Wouldn't you like to ride this bus? And we'll bring you to church. And they'd talk to the parents, and they'd bring the kids to church, hoping that they would eventually get the adults. That didn't work. And they raised a whole generation of kids who said, Jesus is fun, but when I don't want to be a kid anymore, I don't want to go to church. So once they reached adolescence, those kids didn't want to go to church. Well, how do we keep them? Well, now we have to make Jesus cool, and we started youth groups. And youth groups were groups that would have their own music, and their own kind of speakers, and their own kind of thing. And the parachurch knew this well. And so Youth for Christ people like myself began to be hired by churches to be Youth pastors, even though we knew nothing about the normal church. And so what we ended up with was a compartmentalization of ministry and generations, which became the norm. And to make it clear that we were not going to get into the old argument of the denominations, we used the term non-denominational. That's when this false dichotomy broke out. Hymns versus choruses. We were singing, Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. Now you know the song. Alleluia, 
Hallelujah. And that would go on for 20, 25 minutes. And then we'd sing, come to the water. And then we sing, we are gathered here because we all believe. If there's a doubter in the crowd, we ask you not to leave. And we sang this folk, country, light rock music. And I had my, my band was called the Playboys in those days, till, till um, Gary Lewis came out with this diamond ring and then we had to change our names. But I had a little Playboy bunny rabbit on my guitar that was covered over with a picture of Jesus when I played in the churches. This compartmentalization was normative. It, it wasn't a problem. It was normative. These guys didn't want that crap in the church. They hardly, hardly wanted guitars in there. And these guys thought that a piano and an organ was awful until somebody decided to put them into rock and roll songs. So, what began to happen was the younger generation locked into this new and avoided the traditional as passe, and the generational gap, the older ones locked into the hymns and basically uh, turned into an enclave. So now we had two generations both believing in Jesus, but they could not speak to each other. They didn't understand each other. And their whole frame of reference for Christianity was different. So churches said, well, if we're going to have both, we'll have both. And they had a contemporary service, and they had a traditional service, and that reinforced the compartmentalization so that people didn't really get together. And that battle has continued to, the, to this day where most of the contemporary churches, if you go in and listen to them, when everybody gets up and the band's going, you've got the drummer here in a, in a fishbowl uh, glass, he's encased in glass, uh, and then you've got the band up there. You don't have religious items up there, you have the band. Everybody's got a praise band, and everybody's singing with a full amplifier. Even if they're in a room half this size, they've got an amplifier system, Okay. And everybody starts, they all stand up and they start singing. And they, it's, it's a Youth for Christ rally from the 1960s. Because they are stuck in that context. And if you go into a traditional church, they're singing, Are You Washed in the Blood? And uh, doing their traditional thing, welcoming the visitors, having them stand up. What happened is... The, the life and the flexibility stopped in both groups. And, and so you can go into the gray-haired, bald-headed, old congregation, or you can go into a bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds acting like they're teenagers. So this youngest generation has said, we don't need that with the emerging church. And so they're starting their own little groups, and we're going to eventually have every generation in a different uh, in a different, because of this radical individualism. Now that's a false dichotomy. This should not have happened and we need to undo it. Judaism and Christianity should never have this false dichotomy. It was never an either or, but always a both and regarding music. Over the generations, sacred music would draw from the best of what was contemporary in style. And in those days, most style was ethnic and linguistic. Um, 
Last night I was sitting by the pool listening to Hawaiian music, pretending I was not in Southern California. And it was a music that I could enjoy and gave me a flavor of, of when we had been in Hawaii. And, and most music historically was ethnic. And pop music in America is ethnic, but Americans don't know that. And what would happen is, as, a, as the religious music became separate from the other, and it was supposed to be, there was music to be used for God and music to be used in common use. Uh, what began to happen is, that which had been the earlier generation became the traditional foundation, and there would be a contemporary music still following on that tradition that then would eventually become part of the tradition, and a new, it was always breathing, it always had a history, and it always had breadth. Over the generations then, that happened, uh, taking the best from the old and the best from the new and combining them into Christian worship. The early folk Jewish, Greek, and Latin music still has a place in the church. And next week, I'm going to play you excerpts from that. Uh, then there was a classical period where Bach and Beethoven and others began to write music for the church. That was contemporary music. But it was theologically sound and it fit into the cultural uh, 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 ethos. And, and it came in and that then became traditional music. And then the gospel style in the South, the Stamps-Baxter Quartet type stuff, began to be used in there. It had very similar flavor to the cultural music around it, but its content was religious. Black gospel style also got used in there. The folk style of the 1970s is almost all you hear in contemporary Christian music um, for a long time. And so what happened is they would bring these things in and they, they would breathe new life into that context. And that's exactly what God intended. God did not intend for us to have a, a liturgy that is dead and old and doesn't speak to us. But he also didn't expect us to be so contemporary that we have nothing in common with those who came before us. He wanted us to have a, a, an appreciation of both of those, and I want to give you a basis for that. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. It's a passage we've looked at before, but I just want to refer to it here. This first liturgical song recorded in the Scriptures is the song of Moses. After God delivered Israel from Egypt and then flooded the Egyptians... Uh, at the at the uh, sea, uh, they then broke into song, and that song was called the Song of Moses, and it's a song that continued to be used in Judaism uh, from that time. So it was a contemporary song that became traditional, and it says, "I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He is hurled in the sea." The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army He cast into the sea. Do you see what's going on? This is a mixture of statements of the Scriptures about God and the acts that God is presently doing among His people. 
And in the process of that, that contemporary song will become a foundation for liturgical worship all in that context. Now, I want you to turn to, that's almost the first book of the Bible. I want you to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, also chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 3 says, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. So, they're still singing that song at the end. That song is the Alpha song and the Omega song, right? But notice they're singing another song. And the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, they're singing both songs. Which one is listed with its words? The new one. Because they know the old one. We must have an understanding that we must know the whole history of our faith. In all its richness, in all its variability, and not get locked into some little narrow, well, I like this better, or I'm simple-minded kind of mindset. Because we are going to have to carry this entire faith and pass it on to the next generation so that at the end <coughs> these words will come to pass. We will sing the old and we will sing the new. So one more passage. Look at Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Now, if we only sing about the deeds that used to happen. Since I have been redeemed. Since I have been redeemed. Back in 1925. Then the Lord's doing nothing. One of the reasons that we give testimony is to know that God is among us. God is with us in our pain. He is with us in our joy. He is with us in our struggles. He is with us in our jobs. He is with us in our families. And we give testimony that God is surely among us. Right? And that should be in our songs. I'm hoping that we will, our musicians who want to write songs will learn to do this. Taking the best of the old and the new. That's what Jesus said after all. When a scribe is fully trained in the kingdom, he will be like a, a person who brings out of his treasure things old and new. Bringing them together in that context. 
These styles have to be subject to biblical truth and biblical command. But the liturgy must breathe. It's not entertainment. It must magnify and glorify God, not the musicians and the performers. So what I'm going to do next week is I'm going to try to bring you some recordings of various religious song from eras to kind of get a feel for that. Some of it will be uh, refreshing to you. Some of it will sound odd to you. That's okay. But ultimately, you have to learn. There were foods you didn't always like, and now you love them. There were clothes you didn't like, and now you love them. We're so fed and narrow, I only want this. We've got to understand the full experience. The crazy thing is that as people get older, they begin to say, tell me about what happened back here, right? We, we should be doing that sooner because sometimes we reach the point where the people who know are no longer available to us and we need to have that. So I'm going to suggest, and I'll talk about this next week too, uh, there's a difference between taking a song that's in the world and just re Framing it. Okay, if you saw uh, Sister Act, uh, they sang, I will follow him. Okay? Now, it would be impossible for me to sing that song and not think of the 60s girl groups. So, follow him is about a boyfriend. So we don't just take songs and say, well, this works for me. That's that postmodern, anything can mean anything. What we want to do is tie it to biblical truth. And there is a way to take the music style, and in some cases the tunes, and reframe the lyric and the wording so that truth is being sung appropriately. And we'll talk about that also. But I want you to see how it's been done in the past before we do that. So... Uh, Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do a brief Q&A.